Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark. We're going to finish the sermon I kind of started last week. <laughs> this passage in Mark, this particular passage in Mark, causes a lot of questions. I've had a lot of questions about these particular items in this passage, which is why I split it off from last week's sermon a little bit. We're talking about prayer necessities this morning. We're talking about things that we, we must try to master in our lives for our prayers to be effective. Um, I'm going to try to answer a lot of these questions, but I'm sure when I'm done, there'll be somebody with a, a question, and so come see me, because it's never, it's never completely clear in everybody's mind. But just to kind of set the context of this discussion he has with his disciples, Jesus has cleared the temple. He's made it clear their worship is improper. The way they're worshiping is wrong. He's cleared it, and he's seeking proper worship. But he also cursed a fig tree to symbolize and declare a curse on Israel, which came about in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed that temple. Well, now the disciples have seen the dead fig tree the next morning. And now Jesus teaches them about prayer. Let me read this passage, starting with verse 22. Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive your wrongdoing. Father, I thank you for this word, and I thank you for the clearness of it, but I also thank you for the rest of Scripture that helps us understand it. Help us this morning to grasp the concept of prayer, faith in you, and forgiveness in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Jesus responds to their astonishment over the fig tree with, with a lesson here, basically a lesson about how he could even ask God for that curse to happen. Have faith in God. So we need to realize that prayer requires certain components. It requires certain components for us to approach God correctly. So what necessities does our prayers need when we go to God? Well, there's two vital parts in our prayer life, and I'm going to talk about those this morning. The first one is faith. There's no reason to go to God if you have no faith in God. Remember what Jesus says here, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And that's a glorious promise. Now let's talk about it a little bit. First of all, Peter points out the dead fig tree. So Jesus begins a lesson on trust and prayer. I don't make the connection, but Jesus did, so let's do that. Jesus will now explain how such an event, how any miracle that he's done could happen because of faith in God, God his Father. So he says, have faith in God. That's the first thing out of the chute. That is the crux of the entire passage. If you don't start there, you don't start anywhere. You don't get anywhere. 
Have faith in God. Jesus tells Peter this is the only way the tree could die overnight by a command. So let's break it down. Have. Have faith in God. Have. What does that mean? It means to possess. It means to get hold of. It means to have in your possession. Go get it. Do whatever you need to do to have it. Have faith in God. The next one. Next one. Second one. Faith. Faith means trust. It simply means trust. It means trust, complete dependence, no second thoughts, no other recourse in your mind. There's no other option for you to, but to have faith. And then the word in could also be the word on. Just depends on your translation and also depends on the way you want to read the passage. Faith on. It's where the source of faith comes from. And the next word provides that source. Where is the basis for this faith we're talking about? And then the last word, God, Yahweh, Jehovah. I am the one true living God. He is the real source of any supernatural event, like a dead tree. So that's, that's breaking down, have faith in God. And, and one exercise you can do when you're memorizing Scripture or when you're just reading it sometimes is to read it with different inflections on the words. You could read it, have faith in God, have faith in God, have faith in God, have faith in God. You can do that, and it kind of gives you an idea of what this simple sentence really means. But let's talk a little bit more about this, okay? Faith in God also implies you are submitting to his will. Faith in God is not a ticket you punch. Faith in God is a submission to his will. The faith of Abraham, the faith of David, the faith of Elijah, the faith of Isaiah, the faith of Daniel, the faith of Mary, Jesus's mother, points to obeying God. Faith without obedience is useless. That's where faith starts. Faith in God without submitting to God's will turns prayer into wish granting, like a, a genie. You know, if you don't submit to God's will, you're just asking a genie for a, genie for a wish. That's a genie in, in Alabama, not a genie. But So listen, real prayer starts with faith. Jesus is really pointing his disciples to the beginning of prayer and his faith. You know, James writes in his letter to the church, the prayer of a righteous man affects much, accomplishes much, is powerful. So our righteousness starts with obeying God. Our first obedience, the first thing out of the chute you should be doing is believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because that's the only way any of the other obedience will even matter and make, make sense to you. Our first obedience is believing in Jesus as our Savior, the one who we gain forgiveness from, the one who gave us this Lord's Supper, the one who gave his life and his blood to wash away our sins. That's your first obedience. And when you do that, now you're telling God, I trust in you absolutely. And that's what Jesus is saying. When he says, have faith in God, he says, you are trusting and submitting absolutely to God. It's not in your faith in God that you're submitting to. It's not in your idea of God that you're having faith in. It's God, the, the creator of the universe. You're having faith in God, not in what you think about God, your, your interpretation of God, but that's what the world likes to sometimes create for their gods. So he says, have faith in God. And then next, he gives this really exaggerated example of what you can ask for. We call it hyperbole in the literary discussions. It's an exaggerated example, but it's also to show us how powerful faith can be. Truly I say, 
When Jesus says that, you need to stop and really read carefully what he's coming after that. Because when he says that, he wants you to really pay attention to that. Jesus means for this to be taken to heart. So let's understand that Jesus is, first of all, Jesus has already taught about prayer to these disciples. This isn't their first lesson on prayer. They've been taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. The timeline where we are right here in Mark, they've already heard this prayer thing before. There's, in Matthew 5 through 7, there's all kinds of instructions on prayer. In Luke chapter 6, which happens before this incident, he's already instructed them even more on prayer. So this isn't their first encounter. So these things he's saying to them is not counteracting or countermanding any of those things he's already said. It's adding to the fact that they can ask for a mountain to be thrown into the sea. So we need to understand that, that Jesus has already taught them. He's already demonstrated to them how to pray. He's shown it over and over to them how important prayer is. So now Jesus uses this exaggerated example to reinforce the power of prayer that comes from faith in God. I'm going to keep saying it over and over again because that's the crux of the whole thing. Faith carries that mountain all the way to the ocean and drops it in the ocean. That's what kind of faith in God can do. Remember, Jesus said nothing's impossible with God. Now, Jesus is not saying that any of us need to move a mountain, okay? Not a real literal mountain, okay? That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying you've got the faith to move a bunch of dirt to an ocean, okay? He's saying it's got that kind of power. Now, some people want to use a lot of that kind of stuff for proof. There was a lady that, that heard this sermon in a, in, a, in a church, and she had a, a hill that was blocking her view of the sunrise every morning, and she asked God that Sunday to remove that mountain so she could watch the sunrise the next morning. She got up, opened her curtains, and said the mountain was still there, and she says, I knew it. I knew it. She was looking for proof that God would answer her prayer. She was looking for proof to support her faith. Let me tell you, whenever any issue in your life seems insurmountable by human standards, God can move it. And we must believe that he can move it. doesn't mean he will. That's what trust is. Trust is that he can move it and he'll move it if he needs to. When doubt is lessened, we can expect God to answer with his expert purpose, his expert purpose, and timely execution. That's trust. Trust is not, all, not, trust is not trying to prove there is a God. Trust is in God. Jesus is not trying to get us to have zero doubt either when he says, if you believe and don't doubt. We, we sometimes think we've got to be absolutely doubtless when we pray, but it's almost impossible because we're human. There's always this tinge of doubt hanging around like the lady that opened her curtains and saw the hill. There's this tinge of doubt. Just like Peter, he gets out of the boat, steps onto the water. He's walking on water. He starts toward Jesus and that doubt, that's, that tinge of doubt grows, overwhelms his faith, and down he goes. Okay? We all have that. We carry that. Jesus is not trying to get everybody. You got, can't be doubt-free before you pray. Now, let me tell you, doubt will limit your faith. If it overwhelms you like it did for Peter. But you know what? God may do it anyway. That's why we ask. That's why we take our faith, what little piece of it we may have, and we go to God. It's like the, the man whose son was possessed by the demon, and Jesus was coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and he said, if you can, Jesus, and Jesus said, if I can, and he says, it's possible for anybody who believes, and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. 
We have that little bit of doubt, but we can take that doubt even to God. He may do it anyway, and he may strengthen our faith, or he may wait so your faith gets a little stronger. So then next, Jesus in this, in this passage says, Jesus says, because trusting God without doubt is how to pray, we can ask God for anything. Now, I know some of you are thinking about a million dollars or a new car right now, but that's not what he's talking about when we say anything. Believe that you have received the essence of your request, and it will be granted. The essence of your request, meaning God's still got veto authority. God's still got a plan. But anything is available, so don't be afraid to ask for anything. But remember that you are praying to a sovereign God who sees everything, knows everything. He knows what's coming. He knows what's been. He knows what's going to be. He knows everything. And see, Jesus has already taught his disciples that, so they're not running off saying, well, he'll give me a million dollars, he'll pay my Roman taxes, or he'll take away the Roman government. They already know that, this, that all of this has got to be submitted to the will of Almighty God, which goes back to have faith in God. You can't have faith in God if you're not willing to submit to his will. God moves and acts on our behalf. Believe that, brothers and sisters. He moves and acts on our behalf at our request, but as his righteous will determines is best. And that's, that should make us all happy because then we're not getting something that's going to hurt us. We're not getting something that's going to harm us or harm somebody else. We're getting exactly what we need. We should be comforted by that. So Jesus commands to pray in faith on God's unchanging and omnipotent hand. And that's how we can move mountains. Not literal mountains, but mountains of problems and other things. I know that some of you are still kind of grappling with this, but let me give you an illustration. You know, our faith in God and our prayer in that faith, with that faith, it, it, it also depends on our outlooks. What kind of answer am I looking for? So let me give you an example. At a vacation Bible school, there was this young seminary student, and he was helping with that vacation Bible school. He was home for the summer and was helping. And one little boy, you know, his little seven-year-old, eight-year-old boy, he knew the Bible stories well. And there was a discussion or there was a, a, a song or something that came up and said, you know, talked about God parting the Red Sea. And, and that the children of Israel went across on dry ground. And the little boy just started saying, hallelujah, hallelujah, God parted the sea. Well, this young seminary student, being all educated and everything, said, well, you know, the name for that sea is really the Reed Sea. And it was probably maybe 10 inches of water that they walked through to get on the other side. And the little boy said, hallelujah, hallelujah. And he's going, what are you hallelujah for? That's nothing. He goes, he drowned the entire Egyptian army in 10 inches of water. <laughs> Amen. Yes, it's your outlook. What answer are you looking for? That little boy had the right idea. We need to understand that prayer must always submit to the will of God. Or otherwise, we're just trying to wish things to happen. We've got to use the whole counsel of God when we read passages like this, especially passages where we're hearing things like ask anything you want. Matthew 7, 7, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open. But you've got to read the rest of that passage too because it talks about us as parents giving good gifts to our kids. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven 
Give what is good to those who ask him. Not necessarily your definition of good, but God's. And that's the safest definition there is. In Luke 18, there's a parable of a, of a judge that doesn't really care about people at all but, and this widow who wants justice. And she's persistent. She's constantly bringing her case to him. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 18 of Luke, it says, Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And he will delay not... And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. There's a persistence in our prayer too. We don't just pray until we get an answer we want or we don't just pray until we get tired of praying. We continue to pray because God's going to answer. Jesus in the upper room with his disciples before his crucifixion. In, in John 14 through 16, you can read many passages about how prayer works, how the will of God, the name of Jesus, the words of God, and the Spirit of God impact our prayer. And all those things have to be working together. We never, need to never forget any of those aspects. And then finally, the best thing we can remember about prayer is Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he pray? Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Mountains moved into seas. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Always. Jesus, pray, Jesus prayed that prayer already knowing what the answer was going to be. And it was going to differ from what he was asking for. And he prayed anyway. We need to have that kind of faith in God. That we pray anyway, no matter what kind of answer we're getting. He submitted to God's will and that's what we're called to do. Our prayers must be full of faith and willingness to obey God's will. We must do it persistently too. So how do you pray this morning? Faith in God, on God, trusting God means you, you're not praying to God as a litmus test to see if he's real. Okay, Faith in God prays expecting an answer, expecting God to do great things, but not to just prove that there is a God. But so many times we pray wanting, oh God, if you'd just do this, I'd believe in you more. That's not what God's going to do. No, prayer begins and ends with faith that God is God Almighty. He's in charge. He is the, he is the one his word says he is. We don't have any doubts about that. He does not need to prove himself. And from that position of faith, that attitude of our soul, we, we, a prayer becomes a conversation with God. Can you just think about that? We're, we're not just reciting something to whatever's out there. We're, we're talking to the creator of the universe. The creator of the universe. We're talking to God about what is best for us, period. That should always be our prayer. So what's your spiritual approach to prayer? With faith in God, as God, you can ask anything and accept any answer. That's the beautiful thing about prayers. I can ask for anything, but I can accept any answer when I have faith in God because any answer is going to be a great answer. It's going to be the perfect answer. You know from Scripture what God has done for many souls. You see the history of parting the Red Sea and other things he's done. Now use your faith in God and those proofs to trust him, to speak with God. Are you coming to God with preconceived answers? 
If God doesn't give, answer me this way, or if God doesn't answer me that way, I'm not going to... Or are you just not praying because you're afraid of the answer, or you think you won't like the answer? I've done that. I've, I'm not going to ask about this because I, I, I know I'm not going to like the answer. I still wind up getting the answer anyway, whether I prayed for it or not sometimes. <laughs> so... We need to understand that Jesus isn't writing blank checks here, okay? This is not blank checks. He is not giving up the will of the Father, the will of God Almighty, so you can pray for whatever you want. This is not a material possession prayer. Praying is a submission to God by faith. Prayer is not Amazon or Walmart or any other on-demand service. It is an appeal to the omnipotent God. It's an appeal to to the God so powerful, he can give you whatever he desires. It means we can trust him and we can appeal to him about anything, anytime, and anywhere. So here's how you can pray better. First of all, read your Bible. Read your Bible. See God's character there. See how God moves and works in people's lives. Listen to what it says about him. Learn what Jesus' redemption does for our soul through scripture and let that guide you and and the how to pray better pray <laughs> practice makes perfect at least it gets you closer to perfect it may not be perfect don't be afraid to pray don't be afraid to ask god for the big things you could ask god for a million dollars there's probably a reason you haven't gotten it but you can ask him maybe he'll tell you the reason it's not a sin to pray and sometimes maybe praying outside the will of God. Some, some people may be getting concerned about that. It's like, if I pray the wrong way, then it's a sin. No, no. These are components that your prayer needs, faith being the first one. It's not a sin to pray, but it is a sin not to pray. It is a sin not to pray. Jesus is commanding it right here. Paul says pray c consistently. Pray without ceasing. God says the, we need to pray. So pray privately, pray corporately together with other believers. Prayer is essential to church life. Pray with the faith that says God's answer will be perfect and I will accept it, whatever it is. So Jesus commands us to believe we have the best possible answer to our prayers and accept it as granted. That's what he says there in those verses. So you ask yourself, am I praying like that? I'm not all the time, no. But also, not just faith in God is vital to our prayer, but forgiveness is vital to our prayer. Read verse 25 with me. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Wow. Now, some of your translations may have verse 26 there. Well, Turns out 20, verse 26 was added much, 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 much later by somebody that was copying it, and it was added from, I think, Matthew's account of some of this same story. It's not wrong necessarily. It's just not normally in Mark. So that's why I only read 25. So when you're praying, forgive in your heart anything anyone has done to you. And that's hard. I know it's hard. But we are to do it so God's forgiveness is real to us, is real to us. If we don't do it, well, I'm just going to explain that here. We, we, if we don't do it, we're not grasping the real forgiveness that we've received in Christ. In prayer, Jesus says the heart needs to be aligned with God. And alignment starts with forgiveness. 
It always does. Jesus came and died. We, we celebrated his death, burial, and resurrection right here for our sins. Forgiveness is where aligning our hearts start with. Forgiveness is the whole reason. And so God deems it important to prayer. You can't just gloss over this. Because holding grudges is an absence of faith. It is. It's an absence of faith. You're not trusting God if you're holding a grudge. You really aren't. You're trusting in yourself to get even with somebody. Let me explain. Jesus is not referring here to God's eternal forgiveness when it says he will, he will, or he won't forgive you. He's not talking about your eternal salvation. That, that would make salvation a works-based thing. What he's talking about is that daily prayer of confession that we all must be doing because we all continue to sin. Sinning is a, is a habit, a natural thing we do. So we all must be going daily to Christ, daily to God for that daily forgiveness. And that's what he's talking about. When unforgiving in the heart toward others, holding grudges or vindictiveness in one spirit, the soul is not confessional. So even if you confess your sins, you're really not confessional to God because you're still holding on to something. You're not being repentant. When a soul does that, when a soul is unforgiving, we're just not being the confessional, repentant soul that needs to go to the Lord in prayer, that submitting soul that faith requires. See, we cannot experience the joy and the freedom of forgiveness from God when you can't pray, you can't forgive, I mean, and release the sin of others against them. It, there's no joy or freedom in that. If you've ever held a grudge, you know what kind of chain that is. You know what kind of bondage that is. Praying with unforgiving hearts takes faith in God out of prayer. It is really an act of not trusting God. God forgives sins for salvation, but the daily confession of those sins is useless if there is no forgiving of others. Like I said, this is not works-based salvation. It's not, I have to forgive others before God will forgive me. That's, salvation is all of grace. Jesus is not saying one has to forgive to be saved, but he's saying don't let bitterness grow. Don't let bitterness and unforgiveness smother your prayer. That's what he's saying. He is pointing to these. These are steps towards sanctification of our own soul, purification of our own souls, improvement in our faith. Forgiveness will do that. Having faith in God means one can forgive because they have been forgiven. Let that sink in a minute. We can forgive because we've been forgiven. We have no reason not to forgive. Okay? The only reason we don't forgive is our own revenge. Our own desire to have power or control over something. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have no reason not to forgive. A forgiving spirit is what Jesus is talking about here. And if you can't have that, he holds back the freedom and joy of your forgiveness until you do. Now let me also explain here, this is not, this is not about giving the forgiveness to someone. Okay, to an unrepentant offender. Jesus is not saying that. This is not talking about giving the offender forgiveness before they repent and ask for it. Having forgiveness in your heart is what he's talking about. Giving it is a whole other issue. Giving forgiveness to an unrepentant person is not spiritually healthy. It is not spiritually healthy when you hand it out to someone who has not confessed or repented of that sin. It's 
it's unhealthy. Two ways. First of all, for the offender, he's never required, she's never required to face her sins. She's never held accountable for her sins. If she doesn't know it and you just give them forgiveness, they're going to abuse it. They're going to take it for granted. They're never called to acknowledge their sin, their own misbehavior, or even correct it. For the person who's offended, giving out forgiveness before, they re before the offender repents, there's no real restitution there. There's no restoration of relationships. There's no reconciliation. The hurt lingers because you just gave it away and they really didn't ask for it or, or treat you with any respect on it. Forgiving without confession compromises boundaries that we have set. We're supposed to have boundaries. Peter came to Jesus and asked this very same thing. If someone sins against me seven times and they come and repent, how many times should I forgive them? Seven? And Jesus said 70 times seven. If they come and repent. There's a clause there. But forgiveness in our hearts has got to always be like that. We need to work it out in our own hearts. Being ready to forgive. But you don't need to give it out. Don't give it until they ask for it. Don't be afraid to, and don't be afraid to tell them they've offended you. But forgive, your, but forgive them in your heart so that you can have a calm conversation with them, not an angry one, one without grudge and resentment. Don't make them earn the forgiveness. Now, they have to earn the trust back. That's another whole topic, too, but not the forgiveness. If they ask for it in a repentant, humble way, you give it to them. Grace calls us to do that. That may not mean you can trust him again, and that's, like I said, another discussion. Jesus is speaking of here a willingness to forgive always, but not granting it until they confess. Not resenting it, but releasing it. Releasing that hurt and letting God take that hurt from you. See, God wants believers to be receptive to his daily forgiveness by having a forgiving heart toward others. It just, it just frees us from having to get even with somebody or holding grudges over somebody. Jesus tells us to forgive. <clears throat> Jesus says forgive. You know, prayer without forgiveness is kind of like a promise with your fingers crossed behind your back. I'm going to give you all $1,000. Oh, you know, it's, it's just not, it's like changing the, the contract after signatures have been put on it. It's just not the right way. Unforgiveness in our hearts is hypocritical, okay? Unforgiveness, keeping unforgiveness in our hearts is hypocritical. It taints our testimony to Christ and his forgiveness for us. God sees our hearts when, our, we, when we pray. God sees our hearts when we pray. And he knows what you're holding on to. And so he holds back his daily forgiveness of us till we face that, that truth. He knows if we're harboring resentment or if we're modeling forgiveness. A spirit of forgiveness is the only way we can enjoy freedom, the freedom of our forgiveness in Christ. Only by a forgiving attitude can our church, our church enjoy harmony, unity, and see God's kingdom come. This past week was our 83rd anniversary of our church. And in that 83 years, the congregations have encountered hurts, I'm sure. No church is perfect. Turmoil, strife, insults, assumptions, presumptions, 
offenses, accusations, discord, arguments, disagreements over many things have plagued us. It has. But it does any church. And the only real solution, the only real remedy is for all of us to have a spirit of forgiveness toward each other. If someone has hurt you and they still are here or alive, especially if they're still alive, approach them about it. Go talk to them about it with forgiveness in your heart. As believers in Jesus, he wants us to seek reconciliation. Jesus is always about the relationship. He's always about restoring the relationship. It may not be to the same level of trust as it was before, but you, there can be peace between you, and that's what Jesus is always about. Go to them. Seek peace and love among the family of God. As Paul says, unity in the bond of peace through forgiving spirits. Only from a heart that has forgiven can one deal with the issues and resolve the conflicts in the right way. Not to, de to bite or devour, as Paul says, one another. If we're going to keep the two greatest commandments in the world, loving God and loving others like ourselves, it means dealing with issues from a position of forgiveness. Dealing with them. Facing them. Praying with a heart that seeks contentment. That seeks peace and hope. Built on faith in God's loving and forgiving hands. Like I said, remember, not forgiving is, a, is not trusting God. It's not having faith in God. So we need to pray with open hearts and open hands. Forgiving your heart with no strings attached. I know that's hard, but God can help you. Remember the mountain that can be moved into the sea? This is one of those mountains probably in some people's lives. It's hard, but it will benefit your soul beyond anything you can imagine. And if you need help, want to talk it out, come see me. I would be glad to do that with you. So Jesus teaches about the prayer necessities. Prayer involves faith and forgiveness, and only by these will it ever be profitable to your soul. We're all guilty of these because we're all human nature and we're all sinners saved by grace. We're all guilty of these in our discipline of prayer. We pray faithlessly. We pray begrudgingly sometimes. We pray maybe with anger in our hearts. But imagine how unified a church would be if they could come to each other trusting completely in God and forgive one another. Forgiving others relentlessly. How much that could impact God's kingdom. Vacation Bible School starts tonight. What a great chance to pray in faith with forgiving hearts for these souls of these little children. Let's have a time of pastoral prayer now. If you want to come to the front and pray, bringing burdens to the Lord, come on and do that. We'll take a moment of silent prayer and I'll close us out. But let's, let's pray for our hearts to be right, to be trusting, and for forgiveness to be real in our lives.